0: Welcome to the PBL Playbook, brought to you by Magnify Learning, where we equip teachers with project-based learning tools today so they can engage and empower their students for the future. This podcast will give you the playbook of real PBL facilitators in the classroom, just like you, and help bring you strategies and tools for your PBL game. Now, here are your PBL Playbook hosts, Josh and Andrea.
1: Hey PBL team, welcome back to another episode of the PBL Playbook. We are your hosts, Josh and Andrea, and we are super excited to be back with you. Today we are going to dive into the art of planning a project. With a combined total of 12 years of project planning experience, Andrea and I figured we could tackle this topic in a conversational format rather than doing interviews. So stick with us as we share our thoughts and experiences.
2: I just finished facilitating a PBL workshop in Indianapolis, and one of the most overwhelming things about embracing PBL for our rookie teachers is the project planning process. The task of planning an entire project can seem daunting and overwhelming, so in this episode we want to explore that practice. So where do we start? Well,
1: maybe that's a question all of you have anyway, so maybe we should start there. So Andrea, where do you start? How do you find projects?
2: I think there are a couple of different ways to approach the project planning process. There's um, kind of a standards-based approach where you're maybe chunking your standards, finding that group of standards that you want to cover, and making the authentic connection and finding the uh, the real world connection for your students. Um, and there's also kind of you know an authentic an authentic need comes to you and there's a project that maybe falls into your lap and and you can connect it to your standards. It's almost like a, a, a chicken and egg problem um, you know starting with a standard versus starting with with a project or a problem that you're solving and going from there.
1: Yeah that's I think that totally makes sense when when I think about how I plan a project. Sometimes it feels like I know what standards I need to cover and I start brainstorming for those projects and thinking about how those uh, standards are used in the real world. Other times there's like a totally cool once in a generation eclipse coming right into your backyard and you realize if I'm going to capture the authenticity and the, the engagement that the kids are all feeling, I'm going to need to find a way to map my standards to that that kind of authentic, uh, real-world instance. Uh, so I think it's really important to be able to balance the two. Uh, ultimately, as teachers, we're responsible for covering our standards, so it is really important to always have the standards in the back of our head. But um, how you approach planning a project could vary based on, on the project itself. Uh, do you have any examples of, of projects that you uh, planned in a certain way, whether it was standards first or, or authentic need first?
2: Yeah, a lot of what I do in my classes... Um, does come from standards first. I teach uh, history and we do thematic teaching. So we don't teach chronologically, we teach by theme. And so at the beginning of every, of every year, we take the standards and chunk them by theme um, and kind of make those real world connections. So a lot of times I'm going standards first. Um, so one that we do is, is we have a chunk of standards in U.S. history that's more um, based around leadership or, or kind of like progressive thinkers. And so we take those standards and and align them to the idea of leadership, and we create a project um, where our kids are are exploring the idea of leadership, or kind of becoming leaders, or or creating some sort of pathway um, um, for leadership where they're studying historical leaders and and kind of using that historical knowledge to to drive what they're doing for our project.
1: Now, the thematic approach is that something that's that's typical uh, in a history class, or like when I when, if I were to pull up the Indiana history standards, is it? naturally chunked thematically or is it more chronological
2: in our standards they're they're chunked chronologically Um, for US history I think it is more natural to uh, to find that thematic approach Uh, it's a it's a shorter chunk of history and so it's easier to kind of find those themes Um, when we do it in world history the themes end up being a little bit more chronological Um, but that's something where we go you know every summer and we we chunk those standards, we take, you know, those different themes and say, okay, you know, from standard one, here are the different things we're going to fit into human rights. And from standard seven, here are the things we're going to fit into leadership. Um, And I'm a super visual person, so I will physically cut out each standard and and kind of place them where I want them to go. So that is something that on my end, um, I have to work a little bit to to make those themes work.
1: Yeah, I think that brings up a, a really good point, because when I first started... Uh, working in in planning projects, I felt that I needed to follow the standards kind of in the order that they were written. And as a math facilitator, uh, it it was very specific to a textbook. It was, here's what's going to come first, and then here's what comes next. And And I felt myself... struggling with coming up with projects in that way. Um, and when I realized that I have a little bit more flexibility in how I group those standards, uh, the project ideas started to flow a lot more. Uh, certainly, uh, there's there's a lot of research that's gone into putting standards in that order, and textbook companies have, have put a lot of thought into how they organize those standards. But I think if you really want to plan good projects, you need to be willing to... to um, reorganize the the order of those standards at times. Uh, and so a couple examples from, from my classes that kind of go both ways. Um, in geometry, I found myself kind of... Uh, planning with the standards in mind first. Uh, I, I taught um, co-facilitated an integrated course that was geometry and introduction to engineering and design. Um, and I knew that we needed to cover standards for circles. Um, in particular, we needed to talk about arc length and all, a whole bunch of theorems that went with it. Um, so I started just looking around and, and trying to find ways to uh, plan a project that encompassed those things. Um, and I found myself looking at the chair legs um, in our school a lot. They, they tended uh, to kind of have foot pads that broke off. And um, when I started looking at it closer, I kind of saw part of a circle. And um, the more I thought about it and the more I worked with um, AutoCAD Inventor, I realized that our kids would have to figure out where the center of a circle is from an arc length. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's a perfect way to to cover those standards. It's going to get kids involved and they're going to ask the question like, well, where is the center? Um, and that's a perfect way for me to be able to bring up a whole bunch of theorems Uh, that relate to uh, finding the center of a circle and then utilizing um, the theorems to to find out more information about the circle. So that one, I kind of started with the standards and looked for um, and was looking for authentic connections, Uh, whereas in my societal analysis class this past year, um, I co-facilitated... English 10 and a probability and statistics class, I felt that we looked for or were looking for authentic needs a lot more, and then we kind of found the ways that the standards that I needed to cover fit in. Uh, one of those needs was, was related to weather. Um, our kids in Indiana always face uncertainty in terms of whether or not there's going to be school in the winter. And uh, so when um, my co-facilitator kind of said, hey, we need to... Um, do something with weather. I've always been fascinated with weather. I said, yeah, totally. That's a perfect place for us to be able to do some um, hypothesis testing and being able to figure out whether or not weather models are actually accurate and use that to kind of simulate stuff. So that was perfect. Um, Another great example was the eclipse. It happened for the first time in I don't remember how many years, um, but it was going right through our backyard. I think we were at like 94, 95 percent total eclipse. And I knew all of our kids would be interested in it, so I think it was my responsibility to figure out how I can uh, integrate probability and statistics into that project. So really, a lot of it comes down to, I think, preference um, and what falls into your lap. I remember that uh, project-based learning is meant to be authentic and real uh, and in order for that to happen, you need to be able to to be flexible and, and adapt. Uh, just because a project worked really well one year uh, doesn't mean it will be relevant the next year. So I think you always have to be looking for a project.
2: Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point. Like, we, you know, we talked the past two episodes about um, why PBL works and what makes PBL the best fit for kids. There's no, you know, one-size-fits-all kind of approach to teaching Um, With our students, but I think that that goes for teachers as well. There's no one-size-fits-all for teachers and our teaching style in our classroom. Um, So a couple of examples kind of from the social studies side, uh, you know, we all chunk standards for world history where we have, you know, the development of civilizations and kind of those early river civilizations, and we have to teach about what makes a civilization, um, the different aspects of those of those ancient civilizations. And so for that, we um, had our kids do a, an oral history project. So they learned about the development of civilizations, all of those different aspects, um, and we had them kind of translate that into our own community. So talking about how our community has developed um, and grown over the years. And so that was more starting with the standards and kind of trying to find a real world connection. Um, we also, in our community, have a, a human rights commission essay contest every year, and so we take that idea and align it with uh, the the civil rights standards in U.S. history. So, talking about workers' rights, the civil rights movement, women's rights, uh, and we have our kids use those standards to uh, to enter the essay contest. So, I think the more you can, f- sorry, the more you can find the authentic need um, and, and start there the more uh, real it's going to be for your kids. But, you know, like Josh said, we, we have to teach those standards and we have to cover those. So kind of aligning, uh, aligning what we're doing to the standards and finding that real-world connection so our students see it as well.
1: So we kind of answered the question in a very roundabout way. Um, ultimately, it feels like you know whether you're starting with the standards and then finding the authentic need, or you're starting with the authentic need and, and aligning your standards to it. Uh, you're able to to plan a, an effective project, uh, but there are a few things that you have to be aware of. Uh, and I think one of the questions that I always get when I'm working with um, PBL rookies is, how many standards should go into a project? Um, how long should I be spending on this project? So, uh, Andrea, what you know? What's your guide uh, guidelines for how many standards you try to fit into a project?
2: I think as far as, as far as timing, I try to do between three to five weeks for a project. Um, and kind of, you know, however many standards I would cover traditionally in that time period, that's what I'm covering in a project. So if it's going to take me, you know, three weeks to cover these 10 standards, um, I'm going to do a three week project that, that aligns with those 10 standards. So, so my kind of rule of thumb is, whatever time you're spending in a traditional classroom on the standards that's what you're spending in a project um, but embedded with teaching those standards is kind of you know the teaching of these these skills that the kids need um, and the whole project process within that
1: Yeah, I think that's really important, uh, and that's kind of the guideline that I go with, too, is how long would I spend on this unit if I were covering these standards traditionally, and that's about how long I want my project uh, to take. Uh, Ultimately, we all know how crunch for time we can get when it comes to covering standards, so we don't want to... spend extra time on on small standards that would normally only take two weeks. We don't want to do a four-week project on that if that means we're gonna lose time trying to cover other standards. So uh, I think it's really important to kind of recognize that. At the same time, if I have a four-week project um, and I have standards that only cover two weeks, it's really awkward to try to force standards into a project. It doesn't work very well. And this is something that in the math world um, can be really challenging. Uh, uh, you know, Early on, I would kind of say, all right, we're going to do this project on circles, and you know, maybe uh, three of the eight substandards for, for, circle, um, for, for circles fit the project really well, and the other five didn't fit so well. Um, so I would try to force them, and it became really awkward. The kids felt the tension between why do we need to use this for the project and, well, I guess we need to learn this because it's part of, the geometry class uh, so i would really um encourage you to pause and reflect on the standards and how they work um and make sure that your your project serves uh, the purpose of of utilizing the standards in an authentic way and i think it's really a, a challenge in math at times and that's why um We've kind of also looked at the uh, problem-based learning approach, where we shrink that project into maybe a three- to four-day unit um, and, and uh, pair a bunch of those units together into kind of a, a bigger overarching theme. Uh, so we'll probably talk about problem-based versus project-based learning in a future episode, but uh, those of you who are, are thinking about planning projects for math and you're, you're struggling to see how they all fit together... Uh, don't worry, you're not alone. Uh, certainly reach out and we can talk about problem-based learning and how you might start uh, planning for that.
2: So you bring up a really good point. I think um, definitely in math, but also in other subjects, there are times where there's, you know, a standard or two standards that just don't fit. Um, so what's what's kind of your guideline for those standards that maybe don't fit into a project? How do you, how do you approach that and how do you make that authentic?
1: I think Ultimately, I'm always looking for ways to embed pro- uh, standards into the projects uh, because I think that's the most uh, engaging way to um, cover the, that content and, and it's the most authentic learning experience for our students. Uh, but there are times where it might just not fit. And so I already, always, um, if there are a few kind of standalone standards that, that don't necessarily fit in, I always look for ways to utilize some of the elements of PBL Um, so the inquiry-based approach to project-based learning um, to cover those standards. Maybe it's not a full-fledged project, but I'm still looking for ways to engage them in in inquiry, um, get them to ask questions about the standards, and really ask for the workshop. So that may not uh, look like a full-fledged project and may feel a little bit more traditional, uh, but sometimes that's kind of the approach that that I'll take in a classroom where the standard just doesn't fit in a project. Uh, But I'm always looking for ways to make it engaging. I don't just necessarily go into to, uh, lecture mode and say, this is what I'm going to do. We're going to learn this this week because we have to. Um, I'm always looking for ways to, to make that learning relevant.
2: And I think kind of a good uh, approach I guess to, to making sure you're going to cover all your standards is, is taking a look at, at those standards and chunking them into groups or themes or, or whatever you're going to do before the school year starts. So you have an idea of, of what those themes are, what projects you're going to do, um, how you're chunking those standards before the year starts so you have an idea of what comes when. And that gets into a little bit of curriculum mapping and and figuring out um, what goes where, but making sure you're familiar with your standards and, and why that's authentic.
1: So as we kind of uh, move on in, in our... Uh conversation about uh, planning projects, I think there's a couple articles that we want to maybe just briefly mention, um, and we'll link these in our show notes. One of these articles is um, a blog post by Michael Gorman, and his uh, article kind of talks about the whole how you align standards with uh, project-based learning, but what I really like is that he has 12 essential questions that you should answer when planning a project, and we're not going to read all of them here for you, but some of the questions that we really like uh, that I think are important for you to just help you reflect on where where your project's going is, uh, does the project contain standards that are required in your curriculum? Uh, Are you spending more than double the time on the standards inside the project? We kind of mentioned that already. Uh, Are the formative assessments parallel with the mastery of standards? Not only are the standards covered, but are you able to um, assess whether or not your students have mastered them? Um, and, and so those are a couple of questions that I think really stand out. And like I said, there are 12 of them. If you have time, check out that article. I think it's a great way to help you reflect on whether or not your project is meeting the standards. And that's something I always do in the planning process after I kind of come up with the idea is, am I really meeting the standards? This feels like a good time to have an advertisement. We aren't quite big enough to have sponsors like Chipotle or Jimmy John's yet, but someday we'll be there. So don't forget to rate and review us, and before you know it, we'll be reading advertisements about tasty and delicious food. For now, we'll just talk a little bit about Executive Director of Magnify Learning, Ryan Stoyer's new book, Project-Based Learning, Stories, and Structures.
2: Project-Based Learning, Stories, and Structures is a practical guide to starting a PBL journey complete with examples of fails, wins, and a place to get started. Everyone on your staff will have a place to relate in the practical structures and the humorous stories in the classroom. This book includes real-life classroom examples of everyday PBL concepts introduced. A simple six-step structure to help guide teachers and students through their PBL journey together. Practical steps tested by thousands of educators in all types of schools. Project-based learning, stories, and structures is your go-to guide for practical boots-on-the-ground advice to introduce or improve PBL in any classroom. Why not start a book study that everyone will participate in and actually finish?
1: This book is available on Amazon. You can find the link to purchase in our show notes. Check it out.
2: We've talked about how we connect our standards to projects or authentic learning, but where do you get ideas for creating a project? So
1: ideas are out there. All over the place. And I think as you become more ingrained in the PBL culture, you'll start to realize that PBLs are, are uh, projects are really everywhere. Um, some of the places that are kind of go to um, for me are Twitter. Uh, I think I didn't really know what Twitter was until I really became a teacher and started using it uh, to help me with my PBL. Um, I think uh, there are a lot of great people to follow, uh, but also if you just, you know, use the hashtag PBL or PBL chat, there are always people talking about projects and project ideas and different elements of PBL. So if you don't have a Twitter account, I would highly encourage you to to get one and to to start following the huge uh, population of people on Twitter who who talk about PBL and share project ideas. You also probably want to follow some news sources um, I think a lot of my projects that don't come from Twitter come from from something that's happening in the news, something that's that's relevant to our kids, that's relevant to our lives. It may not be a, a specific project, but the idea for a project kind of comes from, from hearing something on the news. That's where the Eclipse project came from when we started hearing about how big the, of a deal this Eclipse was. Uh, my co-facilitator and I said, there's no way we can let this event pass up without, without doing a project on it. Uh, some other places that you can start to look... Um, I know Magnify Learning has a has a project-based learning library that's uh, started with some example projects, and you certainly can can log in and tap into that. Um, and if you uh, are a person who kind of likes to look all over, um, project-based learning really is, is growing. Uh, so there are a lot of projects out there. Um, if you just kind of search for projects on your particular subject, um, there are a lot of projects out there that, that have been tested and that have been shared. Uh, but I would really, really, really encourage you to Uh, Be careful with taking a project that's already made for you, because sometimes it's made for people who aren't your students, and and students will kind of pick up on that. Uh, You know your students better than anyone else, uh, so you want to make sure that what um, you're planning is relevant to them and and will engage them. Uh, Just using projects that are out there on the Internet might do that, uh, but I would encourage you to spend some time thinking about how you might need to tweak it and change it to make sure that it's your own project.
2: So once you have an idea, you've been on the news, you've found something authentic and relevant for your students, um, the next thing that you will want to do is fill out a planning form. Especially as a rookie PBL teacher, it's important to capture your ideas, so utilizing a planning form is important to make sure you've covered all of your bases. Um, we at Magnify Learning have some resources for you. We have Google Slides. We have a uh, a Word document version of a planning form, so if you go onto the Magnify Learning website under PBL Resources, there are some of those for you. It might seem tedious, you might not enjoy that process, but it's a really important step, especially for teachers that are new to PBL, um, to kind of make sure you've checked all of those boxes. These forms are created especially for PBL uh, to kind of guide you in that planning process.
1: I'll be the first to admit that I don't always fill out that PBL planning form with fidelity, uh, you know, especially now that I've been been uh, f- facilitating PBL for eight years, I, I find myself filling out parts of the planning form and then kind of skipping other parts. Uh, what I will tell you is that when I use, the planning form with Fidelity and I fill out everything, I I generally have a better experience with my project. Um, Things run a little bit more smoothly. Uh, I have a little bit better idea of of where I want to go and and what I want my students to create. So whether it's the Magnify Learning planning form or you find one that that works for your needs, I would encourage you to find a a PBL planning form that is designed specifically for planning projects, whether, like I said, it's ours or if you Um, Do some searching and you find something that that makes a little bit more sense for you. Um, That's great, but make sure it's designed for project-based learning because your traditional lesson forms, lesson planning forms, and your unit planning forms don't have the same type of questions that a project planning form might have. So uh, find something that that works for you, but as you're first starting, especially you uh, PBL rookies, but also PBL veterans, use that form with fidelity the questions are, are there for a reason um, and they really want you to think and help you think about what your students will uh, come up with so whether you're starting kind of with the end product first and you're thinking about what kids should be doing or you kind of look at the standards first um, either way as long as you're utilizing a planning form you should be putting together some of the, the nuts and bolts that will help your project be successful when you roll it out with uh, your entry event and and start that project with your students.
2: So I think the next big question about planning a project is how do we plan? So we've got the standards tied to tied to an authentic need. We maybe have this end product, but kind of what are the what are the steps, Josh, that you go about when you're planning a project?
1: So typically, I, I begin with that end product, and I really start to think about uh, what that is and, and how how students are going to deliver. Um, whatever it is that, that they're going to create, whether it's uh, creating something or, or creating a presentation and um, in, in thinking about why that, that outcome, that deliverable, is authentic. Um, so I'm thinking about that and I'm thinking about how in doing that my students will demonstrate that they've understood the content that I want them to learn. So I usually start there and then I actually jump all the way back to the beginning and I think about um, the entry event and how I'm going to Launch the project with the students because that that first day that students encounter the problem in the project is really important for engagement. If the entry event doesn't go well, if the entry event doesn't um, deliver in the way that I want it to, it can kind of set the wrong tone for a project. So, as soon as I kind of have fleshed out what they're going to create, I tend to think about how I'm going to get kids engaged in that. So, I start planning the entry event. Uh, and then I usually pause and, and either ask my facilitators, uh, my co-facilitators and my, my peers for some feedback, or um, I'll actually give the project idea to some of my students and ask them to create just a, an informal no-need-to-know list uh, for me. Because again, as we've mentioned in, in prior um, episodes, that no-need-to-know list really does drive the project. So if the no's and need to knows and um, need-to-know's unlock enough information for me to be able to move forward with the project then i know that my entry event has done its job if that no need to know list isn't quite where it needs to be um, i might go back and revise how i launched that project uh, with my students uh, what about you andrea how do you generally plan a project
2: i think i go about it in a pretty similar way um, going back to the beginning and thinking about that entry event how do you want it? how do you engage the students um, laying out the benchmarks I think, you know, my, my participants at this last training that we just did told me that my catchphrase is, it depends on the project. But I think that is so valid for a lot of the things that we do. It really depends on the project. Is your first move to contact those community partners to get them involved right away? Is your first move to lay out the benchmarks and make sure you have everything in place? Um, again, it depends on the project. So I think in general, as a skeleton, I, I kind of follow um, that outline that you just laid out.
1: Yeah, and I think that's why having a project planning form is really important because uh, as you start to juggle all of these different pieces, the entry event, the final product, the the rubrics, the community partners, um, it's really important that you at some point have a kind of fallback and fail-safe plan that ensures that you've thought about all of those elements uh, because they are all critical in, in project planning and you really want to have an idea for all of those things before you uh, launch the project, because if you don't, uh, you might find yourself either taking too long on a project or or missing some of those important standards, and And kids kind of can pick up on that as well. So I think, again, utilizing that planning form with Fidelity is, is really critical, uh, almost maybe as critical as getting some feedback on the project before you launch it. I know at CSA, our goal is to get feedback on all of our projects before we launch it. If we can, we try to get feedback more than once, uh, sometimes in the just project uh, Idea phase, and then once we've kind of um, planned the project out a little bit more, we also bring it back for a, a tuning protocol uh, that allows us to get specific feedback on the the project that we've created.
2: Yeah, I think this feedback portion is is so essential to planning a PBL. Um, a lot of times, as teachers, we kind of see ourselves as this lone wolf, this island. Um, But that's not the case, right? And, you know, the phrase, two brains are better than one, um, goes for for multiple brains. And I always like to bring my projects to my entire staff, uh, the people that are working with me, because, you know, even someone who's not another social studies teacher is going to see that project from a different perspective and offer lots of feedback. Josh, I've gotten awesome feedback from you about my projects and that kind of math perspective, um, bringing into to the social studies realm. So I think, you know, the more eyes, the more ears that you can get on your project and the more feedback you can get is only going to make that project more authentic um, and more meaningful to your students.
1: Yeah, so whether you have a whole group of people at your your school who are trying PBL or you've got a a close group of teacher friends that that can give you feedback, I think getting feedback in some form is really, really critical. Um, Andrea kind of mentioned how important it is to get feedback from people outside of your department. Uh, I think it's really great because they're just like your students in a lot of senses. They may not understand what the standards are completely. They might have an idea of it, uh, but they can genuinely give you feedback on on what the project is from a perspective of, of potentially your students because at that moment in time they may not understand the standards any better than your students would. So I think it's really critical. Uh, We'll go ahead and put a link to the National School Reform Faculty's tuning protocol uh, because it's really one that we utilize a lot.
2: All right, so we've got a project. We know the planning process. That's so much work. How do we do this for the whole year? Josh, where do you start?
1: So I usually start with, with kind of uh, driving questions and with my standards. So again, at the beginning of the year, I like to chunk my standards, and I really think about um, what standards go well together, how they might connect to projects. Um, and then I kind of write a, a kind of an overarching driving question that, that is more based on the content and, and the, the bigger picture um, before I dive into a project-specific uh, driving question. So when I think about that that driving question process, you know, First and foremost, like my curriculum map really shouldn't change all that much from year to year. Um, I'm teaching the same standards. The standards that get chunked together probably get chunked together because they make sense in that that fashion. so I'm writing a driving question that connects to those standards and that you know is a bigger picture of, of why we have to learn those standards in general um, and then each year, um, the project specific question might change if the project itself changes. so once I kind of have laid out you know how long, each of those uh, chunks of standards are going to take, I kind of think about what projects might go in there. And so I like to do it just on a kind of big piece of paper, and I, I break it down by quarter, and I kind of see how those projects align. And then from there, I'll make notes on the projects, and I'll kind of look at where, where, that, um, where they come from and where they go. Um, and then that's, uh, the specifics come in when I dive into a project planning form.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of similar in that. I chunk by standards first. Like I talked about earlier, I do a thematic approach to social studies and so I, I chunk those standards by theme. Um, for me, those, those standards are a little bit flexible, right? If I have a you know human rights unit, depending on what's going on in the world, maybe I do that first quarter, maybe I do that fourth quarter. Um, but you know if our projects are between three to six weeks, maybe um, we've got about, two projects per quarter. And so we kind of map it that way. Magnify Learning also has a resource for a curriculum map um, to help guide you in that planning process. If you should need that, if you go to the Magnify Learning website under PBL resources, uh, we have a link to that curriculum map uh, outline. I also think a huge part of, of planning your year is just flexibility. If you have an idea for a project you know, early in the summer, you're, you're starting to plan for next year right now, what's happening next spring, in the world might be different and might allow for other opportunities so just staying open to those um, and being flexible with your planning to align with those real world connections for your students
1: i think that's so so critical Uh, and i think that kind of ties to just being willing to reflect and always reflect on on your project planning process on your curriculum map and how how your um providing learning opportunities for your students. I think uh, that reflection piece needs to be ongoing. I mean, it has to allow for you to be flexible uh, so that your I mean, your goal is to make sure that you give your students the best opportunity to learn in the most uh, relevant and engaging way. Um, and so I think if you're always thinking about that, uh, sure, you'll have some projects that go really, really well, and you will want to reuse them, uh, but if they're not relevant the next year, um, or if your, your class actually solved the problem the year before, then your kids will kind of see through that. Uh, So it's always important to be able to think about how you can make your projects better, how you can change your approach to planning a project so that you're, you're better serving your students. I think that's the big thing that we always have to remember.
2: The PBL planning process can seem daunting and overwhelming, but hopefully this episode has provided you with some steps and tips to help you tackle planning a project. This has been a really fun episode to record, just exploring the ideas behind planning a project. Remember to rate and review and contact us via Twitter or email us at pblplaybook at magnifylearningin.org to let us know what you think about the show, ask questions, or request topics for future episodes. Thanks for joining us this week, and we'll see you next time here on the PBL Playbook.
0: Ready, break! Thanks again for joining Josh and Andrea for the PBL Playbook, where we give you the playbook of real PBL facilitators in the classroom just like you and help bring you strategies and tools for your PBL game. If you want to reach the pod, you can tweet at AskGIEBS, at MissB103, and at Magnify Learning. Or you can email the PBL Playbook at magnifylearningn.org with any questions, thoughts, or ideas you have. Also, be sure to show Josh and Andrea some PBL love by rating, reviewing, and sharing the PBL Playbook with other educators.